Kenneth Stephen has written a series of essays about islands in the Hebrides. Today he talks about Mingerley. You can hear the full programme on BBC Sounds. Mingerley is second from the bottom in the chain of islands that make up the Outer Hebrides. It's one of the Bishop's Isles, a cluster of landfalls under the jurisdiction of the larger and more important island of Barra to the north. The name the Bishop's Isles is an indication of the strong Catholic faith that binds the islands in the southern Outer Isles, one of the corners of Scotland not reached by the Reformation. In the library I've inherited from my father is a book of sailing directions for the Scottish West Coast from 1894. It's a dry and dusty compendium and only of real interest if you're an avid sailor and first and foremost because of its antiquity. This is what I found on Mingali. Two and a quarter miles long, northeast by north and southwest by south. One and a quarter miles wide and 882 feet in height, is bounded on the western side by precipitous cliffs varying in height from 150 to 740 feet. The eastern shore, although generally of a rugged nature, is less steep and slopes more gradually from the summit of the hills. About midway is a bay with a sandy beach, a quarter of a mile long. The village containing in 1891 142 inhabitants, stands a short distance back from the beach. A few sheep and small black cattle can be obtained, but no other supplies. What brings this alive for me as an account is that it is of a living Mingale. I visited the island a few years ago, having grown up hearing my mother singing the Mingale boat song, and not realising for a moment doubtless like countless others, that lovely as the words and melody are, they are nothing more than complete romantic invention. I went with some ten others from Castle Bay, the horseshoe harbour on Barra, where magnificent Kishmo Castle on its island guards the bay with ancient pride. I don't think I had any idea what a journey it would turn out to be. We were in a small boat that bounced relentlessly over the waves for two hours and more. It was wet and cold, and the sea did not agree with me. I regretted, rather, that I had agreed to joining the expedition at all. Worse was to follow. We landed on the east side of the island among jagged rocks. It was necessary to clamber relentlessly upwards for what felt like an eternity. Then, at last, the dozen of us were up on high and in safety, and we crouched there together, regaining our breath and exchanging words of relief as something wonderful began to happen. It was as though by accident we had the most magnificent view of the beach, the one described in that account for sailors from 1894. It's as if a great bite has been taken out of Mingale on the east side. That horseshoe forms the bay, and it's filled with golden sand over which the Atlantic comes in whole Viking longships of white waves. What drew us into silence, what caused us to turn to look down from that priceless vantage point and listen, was the singing of the seals. They were with their pups, certainly over a hundred of them, perhaps as many as a couple of hundred. And the song was hauntingly beautiful, 
like that of young women, and their voices flowed into one as they sang together, though they did not sing the same note. I thought at once of selkies, those mythical creatures, half seal and half human, that in stories come to island beaches and shed their skins to dance as girls. And always there's one who doesn't reach her sealskin in time, and is taken home to become a human wife. I have no idea how long we must have crouched there in the raw cold of the rocks to listen to the seals. Afterwards it's as though time stood still. Such moments are frozen like amber in the heart, to be held and thought of again and again in later years. All I remember then is that in the end we clambered on and down from the rocks to walk to the village. We didn't have long. The boat that had brought us was waiting, and soon enough we would have to return. There was a chance to walk through the sad remnants of the abandoned houses before turning to make our way back. And that's what Mingale has been since 1912. A frozen picture. That's when the last people left, defeated in the end by depopulation and the sheer struggle against the elements, the relentless conditions there at the southern tip of the Outer Hebrides. For that chain of islands is almost akin to a dragon's tail, and as the tail tapers at the southern end, the bones of it become ever smaller and smaller. Mingale is out in the worst of the weather, not even close to being in sight of mainland Scotland. For that reason, and for good reason, it's been described as a near St Kilda. One of the main things they have in common is a culture that was built around the harvesting of birds and their eggs. The main island in the St Kilda cluster of stacks and islets is Herta, and it feels like a rock fortress, cliffs ringing it on almost every side. Mingale, as it was described in that rather bland report for sailors, is composed of extraordinary precipices on the western side, but benign and gentler slopes on the eastern side. In other words, it rises and rises into towering edges that are home and have been home for however many thousand years to great colonies of seabirds. These are their tenements, and as on St Kilda, the men scaled the cliffs to come back with birds and their eggs. They were doing this in 1549, when the Scottish explorer Martin Martin visited the island and almost certainly watched the men at work. The rock Linmool is almost inaccessible, except in one place, and that is by climbing which is very difficult. This rock abounds with sea fowls that build and hatch here in summer, such as the guillemot, puffin, etc. The chief climber is called Gingish, and this name imports a big man having strength and courage proportionable. When they approach the rock with the boat, Gingish jumps out first upon a stone on the rock side, and then, by the assistance of a rope of horsehair, he draws his fellows out of the boat upon this high rock, and draws the rest up after him with the rope till they arrive at the top, where they purchase a considerable quantity of fowls and eggs. Upon their return to the boat, this Gingish runs a great hazard by jumping first into the boat again, where the violent sea continually rages, having but a few fowls more than his fellows, besides a greater esteem to compensate his courage. It's clear from accounts that at times the men were climbing without ropes at all, 
and it's worth bearing in mind that on this west side of the island, cliffs were 700 feet high, rising up in sheer dark walls out of the Atlantic. What courage must it have taken for a boy to climb for the first time? And what if he were afraid of heights? Perhaps the very thought of such a thing would have been impossible here on Mingali, as in St Kilda. There could be no choice about becoming a fowler and scaling the cliffs. This was about an imperative need, about the survival of the whole community.
Reverend Dr. Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In this series on heart and soul, he's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he tells us to be aware of the signs around us. Red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning is a shepherd's warning. There are a few other well-known proverbs that still apply roughly today, and people have put some faith in them, but nowadays, really, they don't bother too much because at any time of the day or night, you can switch on the television and you'll get a weather forecast or even look up your app for your own local area, even radar maps of when it's going to rain almost to the hour. The problem is that often these are fairly accurate but often only just so, because each local situation has maybe a mountain or a valley or a lake or something in the way, and that will cause the weather to be just a bit different there. So it might be worth learning for your own location how to read the signs. There's a very interesting custom that's almost died out in the Pacific Islands, particularly the Marshall Islands, and this is where the people travel from one tiny island to another tiny island, maybe hundreds of miles away, using a map. But the map is made out of sticks tied onto a bamboo frame. If you can imagine a rough square of bamboo, and then sticks tied on at different angles, at different curves and crossing in different ways. And these, if you understand them, these represent the currents and the wave size of all the different directions of the sea. Because the amazing thing is, when the sea passes an island, the sea can be disrupted for up to maybe uh, 50 miles beyond that island, a different kind of wave can come. And because these men in the Marshall Islands, who were the old navigators, understood these, they can look at the shape of the waves and the direction of the waves and be able to point towards the very island they want to go to. And it still seems to be possible to do it today. But as I say, the knowledge is now dying out. And isn't that sad? Because it means people are no longer relying on their senses, but relying on other people to tell them what's good and what's right. And this loss of what I would call common sense is one of the biggest tragedies in our world today. Too many people seem to rely on others for their own advice. There's lots and lots of knowledge, but very few people are learning. So look around you, see what's going on. Note with your eyes the clouds and the waters and the ripples and enjoy them first of all, but see if you can see any pattern or anything to help you discover first of all, what the weather is like in your area and second, who it is that's worth trusting, who seem to have knowledge and seem to be able to look about them.
Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Fear of Landing John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they came and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat, privately, to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. Some modern evangelists seem to have forgotten the emphasis that Jesus placed on cost. Don't follow me, he said, unless you've sat down and hard-headedly counted what it will cost you. In this passage, we see the kind of example he set. It begins with Jesus receiving the news of his cousin's death and withdrawing to grieve, followed by the crowd. Jesus didn't have many breaks. This one wasn't allowed to last very long. I can be terribly lazy at times, but I do know how it feels to have two solid blocks of speaking engagements separated only by a plane journey. I understand a fear of flying. Not much fun if things go wrong up there. Options narrow down to less than two. But I enjoy the peace of being nowhere, fending off the food, sleeping through the film, hating first-class passengers, and solving yet again the puzzle of the toilet doors. Best of all is being sure that those I left behind are left behind, and not about to suddenly appear, while those who wait will have to wait a while for words and nods and smiles of understanding. I am here, and they are there. I am suspended, dreaming, guiltless in the air. My fear is not of flying, but of landing. The needy crowds claimed Jesus after his brief respite, and it was back to work again, healing, teaching, listening. By the time evening came, you'd have thought he might be entitled to a bit of peace, but he takes upon himself the responsibility for feeding them all. Have you ever asked yourself how long it took to break off enough bread and fish to feed more than 5,000 people? That was one time-consuming, hand-aching miracle. Time for a rest? Not yet. If you've ever watched people descend on a speaker after a big rally, you'll know how long it took for Jesus to dismiss them. And finally, they'd all gone. Sleep now? No. Time for essential prayer. And if you'll read on, you'll see that the night was far from over. Not everyone's called to a life of grinding toil, but the commitment to Christ that is asked of us if we want to be of any use is exactly the same, and we are right to fear it. The cost is very high. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, sometimes we fantasize about doing great things for you, but as with all fantasies, the reality is quite daunting. 
Show us by your example how to work and rest and pray so that we can be as useful as we are capable of being. Amen.
Do you want to know the full story of the faithful dog, Greyfriars Bobby? You can get the Kindle version free on Amazon. But be warned, the book is written in a broad Scots dialect. Here's Mary Haddo's version of the story. John Grey was a farmer, a gardener, and together with his wife Jess and his son John Jr., they arrived in Edinburgh around about 1850. He couldn't find any work, naturally enough, for a farmer. He couldn't find any work as a gardener. And so what he did was he became part of the police force at that time and was a night watchman in Edinburgh. And to keep him company in the long winter nights, he decided that he would take his dog with him. It was a small dog. It was a watchdog. Um, and it was called Bobby. And together, John and Bobby became familiar sights on the streets of Edinburgh. But the years on the streets seemed to take its toll on John, and he became ill. And we know this because he was treated by the police surgeon. But eventually he became so ill that he died. And he was buried in February 1858 in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Now, very soon... Bobby was the one who became centre of attention. He touched the hearts of those who were round about, the neighbours round the, the kirkyard, because every day Bobby would be there on the grave of his master, keeping watch as he'd always done. He was there in all kinds of conditions. The gardener and the keeper of Greyfires tried to show him away, but he didn't give up. And eventually, they provided a shelter for him, just so that he could be there. Bobby's fame spread throughout Edinburgh. And it's reported that almost on a daily basis, the crowds would gather at the entrance of the kirkyard, waiting for the one o'clock gun that would give the signal of the appearance of Bobby leaving the grave for his midday meal because he would follow a man called William Dow, a local joiner and cabinet maker, uh, who was a friend and went to, uh, of John and went to the same coffee house, and there they were given a meal. In 1867, new laws were passed that required all dogs to be licensed in the city, or they would be taken away. And Sir William Chambers, the Lord Provost, decided that he would pay Bobby's license and presented him with a collar with a brass inscription that says, Greyfriars Bobby from the Lord Provost, 1867, licensed. And that collar can be seen in the museums in Edinburgh. Now, many people took care of Bobby, but he still remained loyal to his master. For 14 years, he was there. He was on constant watch and guard until his own death in 1872. And Bobby's headstone reads, Greyfriars Bobby died 14th of January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Bobby showed amazing faithfulness towards his friend, John. He toughed out through bad weather, long nights, the threat of new rules that could have just seen the end of his time on earth. And I find that amazing, the loyalty and the faithfulness. 
but I'm more amazed, more amazed by the many stories we hear in the Bible about God's faithfulness to us, about how God is always with us, caring for us, wanting the best for us. And sometimes we become so used to that fact that we just let it wash over us. God is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And great is your faithfulness. But let's remember too that it's not just terriers that are called to be faithful. It's all of us too. That friendship that God offers to us is a gift. And if we accept it and we return that friendship, life can become something totally different.